On last week's episode, I talked to Joel Waldman, Emmy Award-winning former network news correspondent, about the ever-changing relationship between the media and criminal justice. Today, we'll continue our conversation with Joel about the inspiration he's drawn from his mother, Carmela, an 84-year-old Holocaust survivor, the importance of maintaining your ethics as a journalist, and the many parallels in the lives of law enforcement and members of the news media. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson. What do you think of the uh, tabloid press in the UK? Because it's the most notorious tabloid press in the world, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it's good and bad. Sometimes it's a great opportunity and a great platform, and other times it's just a great story. And, um, you know, that's them doing their job. They're not liked, obviously. And I think things have changed literally since the royal family kind of got upset with Diana situation but that's what I mentioned before you know Harry is all about this destroyed my mom's life this you know it's the media but hold on a minute let me get a 150 million dollar Netflix deal and use the press to tell you how bad they are so I think that's kind of Mm -hmm. my issues not with Harry obviously um, but across the board is you can't have everything you can't you know, say they're great one minute, but then use them for the next or block them. You know, it's, it's, you've got to have a balance. Um, are they vultures? Absolutely. They are, but they're doing their job. <laughs> yeah. So when you were working as a, a reporter, what's the one job? And it doesn't necessarily have to be crime, but what's the one job that's still with, with you that you were like, damn, I couldn't do that. Or they stopped me doing is there anything that, I mean, you're in Tucson, so I need to talk to you off air about Tucson. My son's at Tucson. We'll discuss that off air. <laughs> I mean, but, I mean, the story, um, I mean, there's there's a, a few that stand out. Obviously, uh, 9-11 was huge. But uh, the one for me that was really difficult was uh, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. I was up on scene there, you know, just a couple hours after it happened, and I remember President Obama was in office at the time and he swore to, you know, and I don't want to make this a political issue, but uh, it just doesn't seem like anything has changed since then. Right. And now we're right. Tw- I want to say that was 2014. I want to say now it's 2023. Can you just explain to the to the people listening the Sandy Hook situation and then what your involvement was? Yeah. So Sandy Hook was uh, the elementary school in Connecticut where uh, 20 people were shot and killed, and most of them were uh, six-year-olds. Uh, it was the first time there was a mass shooting of school children that young. Yeah, one of the really kind of surreal things of that night was after we were done reporting, uh, my photographer and I, we went to a diner, and I was sitting next to this guy, and I just had a hunch. I just had a weird hunch that he was one of the fathers of the kids who was just in there at the end of a very long day just trying to get his bearing straight, literally had just lost a six-year-old. I didn't know it for sure, and I could tell he was a regular. And we sat there, and my, pho- my photographer and I, we, you know, we knew each other really well to the point where we could kind of communicate without speaking. We were having this conversation sort of silently, like, is he a parent? Is he not a parent? Because that was, at the time, that very first day, would have, quote-unquote, been the, you know, the biggest get in the country. It was a 
huge national, global story to get apparent that, I mean, eventually a lot of them talk, but not the very, very first day. Long story short, toward the end of the meal, one of the, like, the, the short order cooks from the back came out and basically gave this person a huge hug and said, I'm so sorry. And I knew right then and there it was apparent. And I said to my photographer, no way, no way. Uh, and we just backed off. Like I could have gone up to him. I could have asked, and he would seem like the kind of guy that would have talked to me. I just didn't want to do that to him the first night. And it just, it's kind of giving me goosebumps right now because it's, That's yeah, because too. you want to always remain, you, you want to, keep the humanity about you as a reporter. And there are a lot of dipshits, for lack of a better word, that will do anything to get the story. And they would harass and bring a camera in there. And you just have to know, and I think some of that comes with experience, and you just have to know uh, when to push a story, when not to push a story, uh, when to ask the question, when not to ask the question. Because at the end of the day, you know, you you don't want to cross that line into sort of being this, you know, monstrous tabloid reporter like they have in, in England or TMZ or constantly and perpetually crossing the line. So I just made the decision, you know, and it kind of buck stops with me that we weren't going to do it. And sure enough, the next day, I think we saw him on the news and I was totally fine with it. And I just said, you know, it just wasn't the right time then. So you just have to make these decisions uh, as you're going through, uh, you know, the, the winding road of, uh, of reporting about what you want to do. And you just want to act like a, a human being. And that makes up for a lot of, a lot, a lot of what you do. And while you were just saying that I was writing some notes and I've put, and you've, I've crossed it out now because I put, how did you feel about approaching somebody at that time? And you've explained that, but you just said that you had the whole day reporting, you were drained, the adrenaline's running, I'm sure. Um, how do you decompress at the end of that how do you switch off you have your photographer what are your emotions obviously you're a dad and um and a son and all the rest of it what's it like at the end of an investigation day like that yeah it's tough uh back then uh sandy hook uh i started late as a dad i did not have children but i'll tell you that day a lot of my reporter friends and photographers, and by the way, news is a real team effort. You know, you've got editors, photographers, producers, and and they're really the ones that do a lot of the heavy lifting. You know, the reporter's the one whose face is on camera. So, uh, but I always considered a real team effort. But the guy, the guys, and and the the women who had children that day, there were a lot of people just literally just crying, like doubled over crying because it was so sad. Um, and it's hard to not let your emotions go. It's it's really sad. When I was in Tucson, I was the first reporter at the hospital after Gabby Giffords was shot. And one of the ironies, this is something a little different than what you just asked, but one of the ironies about news is that it's usually the horrible stories that get you noticed. And uh, I had worked a border story uh, with an officer named Brian Terry that became sort of a, a huge national story. And then... Right after that, on the back of that, Gabby Giffords, there was an assassination attempt against her. And uh, I followed her to Houston for rehab. And that story got me really, you know, noticed nationally. And that was kind of a mixed bag because, you know, you, you want to get noticed for your work, but you don't want to get noticed for a congresswoman being being shot. But to answer your question, it, it's um, anytime you're away, particularly at a big story, it's tough. It's, it's tough because you're so invested in it. 
and, and we would work 12 straight hours or 13 straight hours. And then, you know, we'd go and we'd just grab a bite or grab a drink. But once I had kids, it was tough, you know, coming back into like the family environment and being a dad, as opposed to being this guy who's out there chasing the story. It's a very um, difficult transition back and forth. So uh, then to be perfectly blunt, it's why a lot of marriages and news, they, they fall apart. They really do. And I had to make that choice. And it was a very difficult choice. It wasn't easy. And I struggled for many, many years, um, probably five years or so after I left news, because it's such an adrenaline run. It's kind of like being an investigator, I'm sure. You yeah. know, when there's a crime, uh, you're all over it. You know, they, there's a show here, obviously, the first 48, you're, the first 48 hours are so important. Uh, you're you're out to catch the, the killer or whoever the uh, suspect is. And then, you know, and then you get them and then it's kind of this like uh, adrenaline dump. Right. So it was it was tough for me to go in and out of that constantly. I had to make a tough decision. And the other thing about being an investigator, I think, and also in, in media is the structure. That's one of the things I had the toughest time with, you know, because uh, when I was a reporter in New York City at Fox 5, I would work the 10 o'clock news. I would go in at 2 p.m. and the minute I enter the door, it's New York City. They say you got to be in the Bronx for uh, a robbery. Minute the five o'clock news is over, you got to be in Queens for a homicide. And so you're so structured. You don't have time to. Th- I, I used to say the time I, the time would go so fast. The day would end so quickly. I remember thinking I'm going to be 90 like before I can bat an eye. Uh, once I left news, time like slowed down so much. But it was really hard for me. Because I was, I got up and I had my own business. What do I do? You know, and, and it's such a team effort, like investigating stuff. Uh, so that was a really big transition and something I don't think a lot of people get. I, I pitched to, I just had a, a mural made for my new podcast studio. And this guy's an awesome artist. Shout out to Andrew Hayes. And I told him there really needs to be like a, an AA for creators now because we're, uh, we live these strange worlds, you know, like we're, I'm working all the time, but I don't feel like I have like that structured job, you know, like I was in news, but I'm sending emails at one in the morning. I'm, you know, looking at, I'm reading stuff the minute I wake up. I'm checking out how many views I have. So, uh, and it's a whole different kind of uh, ball of wax. Um, So I don't know, maybe I'll start a creator AA uh, one of these days. We'll see. Yeah, I'm in for sure. It is like being a detective in, in, or an investigator or a cop in some ways because you get viewed as not being a human element to a, a story. So when you go to a particularly horrendous scene or case, you're a cop, you have a uniform or not as a detective, but you're supposed to be superhuman. And it's the same kind of thing from what you're, you're saying your role was, but we are human, right? So we see that somebody's children have been killed and that's the Ellen Greenberg you know that the emotion that is being felt by you and me and anyone else who touches that is because we're human and I think that people forget that they see you as you're just the horrible investigator who'll do anything you're the journalist who'll do anything because you need your story I need a I need to find someone and one of the things that I learned when I was particularly was a rape officer you've got a team who are counting on you to get as much information as you can out of your rape victim but you as the rape officer who's the go-between needs to work with your victim 
and there was a real strong pull and lots of heated arguments between the guys on the street going, we need to catch him, and you being able to look after your victim because she's your primary concern. And it's the same from what you're saying. You're not really human. You don't get affected by these stories. Yeah, I think that's the perception. And it's interesting because I've never really given it a ton of thought till this very moment. But um, I think there's a ton of parallel between investigators, police officers, law enforcement, and journalists in the way that we are both perceived and we do the job. I have to say, obviously, uh, you guys are, uh, you know, I, I, I really look up to you know, you and, and all these other law enforcement officers that I have on the show. Um, I just had, again, uh, to invoke his name, Detective Phil Waters on, and I'm going to have you on. I started a new series called Surviving My Biggest Case, and Phil walked me through a triple homicide. And the things that you guys have seen, reporters don't walk into crime scenes. We stay outside behind the yellow tape. You guys are seeing these things with your own eyes. And the amount of trauma that you guys absorb, it's incomparable to what we deal with. I always kind of just, I don't know, I always considered myself this kind of just like this kid having fun. Uh, sort of just doing a job that I enjoyed that never really, never felt like a job. Still to this day, maybe I should have been a lawyer. Maybe, you know, should have been an accountant, something that's a quote unquote real job because I never felt like I had a real job. But when I look at you guys, you're, you're getting justice for these families. You're solving cases. You've got a huge burden on your shoulders to get the justice for these people. Journalism is kind of a bedrock of society. So is, you know, law and order. Bottom line is I think your guys' job is a lot tougher than our job with a lot, you know, more kind of dire consequences. If we don't get a story, we don't get a story, but you don't catch a serial killer, someone could die. So uh, it's the way I look at it. Yeah, that's that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I've got a couple of more questions, but you mentioned the word hunch. You said, you know, when you sat in that restaurant and you had a hunch that the guy was a dad, how much as a journalist do you work on your hunch? And is that something that's taught or it comes together with experience? Because I know as an investigator, hunch is really, really important. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I never took a journal. Well, that's not true. In high school, I had a very, I come from a small public high school, shout out to Highland Park, New Jersey. And we had a journalism teacher named Bob Stevens, and this is in the eighties. And he used to keep true story, a flask in his drawer. Uh, and he would you know, take a couple of sips throughout the day, but he was, he influenced so many people. Uh, we had one of the youngest editor in chiefs of Vanity Fair, of GQ magazine. We had a couple of really famous actors that were all kind of a byproduct of him. Jim Axelrod, who's a very prominent CBS national correspondent, all had Bob Stevens uh, as a teacher. So he influenced a lot of us. But beyond that, you know, I never took a journalism class, not in college. In college, I was an English major. I kind of just fell into it. Like I said, the thing I think that number one interested me in it and has helped me so much is my dad, who just recently passed away. He was a psychiatrist My mother is a licensed therapist. So I grew up like super interested in people, the human condition. Uh, Why do people do certain things? And that's what got me interested in true crime. What would precipitate someone to to stab to death four people in Moscow, Idaho? What are they thinking? Um, What is it like to be a parent the night your six-year-old was just literally riddled with bullets and murdered in a classroom, which is supposed to be the safest place you know, in the world. Um, so I've always been very curious 
And it's not like any of this was very clear to me ever. Uh, it wasn't like I said, oh, I'm the son of a psychiatrist. And the, it wasn't like any of this was clear. It's stuff that I've right. come to understand as I've gone through this process. So I think intuition, curiosity, an interest in human nature, all these things are what makes a great you know, journalist. And again, I think it goes back to you're never going to be a great trial lawyer by going to law school. You're never going to be a great investigator by going to uh, get a criminal justice degree. You're going to become great at it by doing it and working the scenes or being in the courtroom. You know, the famous thing is it takes 10,000 hours. I think it was Mal- Malcolm Gladwell who said 10,000 hours to become great at anything. And I, I kind of try to drill that into my little kids who look at me like I'm crazy. But, um, but it takes a long time to develop that. But I think there are certain people who have certain curiosities, and I'm sure you have that as well, which is why you became an investigator. And that's why certain people, you know, some people are fine just counting numbers all day, and that's why they're actuaries, and that's great. But if I ever had to sit at a desk all day and be an insurance actuary, I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> I probably would have ended it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I think the police thing is something that changed over time because, you know, they took in clever people, and I wasn't a clever person with a degree, but then they changed, or certainly in the UK, they changed it. You couldn't join without having a degree, and now they've gone back to you can join without having a degree, but you can be fast-tracked. To me, there's there's nothing like being on the ground and dealing with people and emotions and seeing things. You can tell someone how bad something is or what you're feeling, but to actually live that, and it's, you know, I can't put myself in Ellen Greenberg's parents situation because I thankfully touch wood have not lost a daughter but I can be empathetic because because I've seen other things that you know and other people's behavior and reactions and one of the things we said very clearly on your show was that not everyone does behave how society expects them to behave and I think that having a, a hunch is something that is really, really valuable in both of our jobs. 100%. You've got to have a curiosity and an, and an interest. Otherwise, you're just not going to want to do the work. And it's not a job that everyone can do either. You know, being a journalist and going to a scene like, you you say you didn't go in the scene, you, were, you get stopped at the tape, but the emotion of everything and dealing with people and seeing trauma and hurt and devastation, I don't think everyone can do. And that's probably what sets you apart from somebody else. And it's like child abuse. People will say, how can you how can you deal with child abuse? How do you arrest a pedophile and then sit opposite them? Well, you know, my human instinct and as a mom, I want to kill them just as much as anyone else does. But I also have a job to do. And I'm fortunate that I can do that job. And that's kind of how you have to close it off in your brain. That I'm I'm actually helping someone by listening to this bullshit that's coming out of this guy's mouth and interviewing a pedophile is very different to interviewing somebody else, for sure. I've come to learn that uh, compartmentalizing is a very critical feature to surviving in one's life. You know, the podcast is called Surviving the Survivor, and I in this book that I just wrote, I kind of examine a lot of this with my mother. She lost her father without getting this again. This is a separate episode, but yeah. my, my grandfather was gassed in Auschwitz and she lost him at a very young age. 
and she lost a child too. And I, I kind of think, and my mom is probably the most optimistic, positive person you will ever meet. And I always, and I'm a kind of a classic whiner, neurotic, worrier. Um, so I was kind of examining this as I was writing the book. But one of the things that really saved her is her ability to put certain emotions aside and kind of just continue through life, which is not an easy thing to do. And she was kind of forced into it at a very young age. The irony is that my father, who lived to almost 90 years old, without a doubt, has been the biggest impact on her right now, uh, where she's having the hardest time compartmentalizing. So again, we go through that. But I think as an investigator or a reporter, because I've heard plenty of wailing and screaming at crime scenes and uh, people who just lost loved ones, and you've seen that uh, all too often. And, uh, you know, I know you guys, uh, at least in the States, a lot of homicide detectives, they respond to any kind of manner of death for a baby. So a lot of investigators I've talked to have seen a lot of dead babies, which is just hard to fathom. And they all say across the board, it's my, you know, it's our job and we have to kind of put it aside. I think that stuff creeps up on you if you don't take, you know, proper care to, to, you know, sort of cope with it at some point, but, um, it is a, it's a difficult challenge and, uh, it is important to be able to put things into their little pockets so you can do the work in front of you. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's, it's a, it's a rough world. My mom, the original tagline for the show was surviving, surviving the survivors, surviving in a rough world. My mom would always say that as a joke. I'm just trying to survive in a rough world, but it is a bit of a rough world. It's a great world, but a lot of things a lot of people have to deal with. And so uh, right. kind of have to roll with the punches, I guess. Well, on that note, can I please, please ask you about Carol Baskin? What's the go? Yeah. Come on, the inside, the inside scoop <laughs> on Carol. Because I have my own opinions. She was an interesting character. So the um, the hilarious thing was my mother had never heard of Tiger King. And it was literally the biggest show in America at the time. I mean, I think like... COVID time, wasn't it? Yeah, I want to say like 65 million people watched it like in the first week or some, some crazy number. My mother, of course, had never heard of it. And Carol Baskin was so happy because like she finally met the one person who had never heard of it and wasn't going to pester her. But when she came on, she came on with a caveat that she was not going to talk about. She didn't want to talk about Joe Exotic and she didn't want to talk about her ex-husband that she's been uh, thought to have murdered. But that guy showed up recently. Um, that guy surfaced. What? Uh, hold on. Yeah. This this is really. Yeah, I think he surfaced. I'm pretty. Sh- I'm 99 sure that that no guy. No way. Do a quick Google search. I'm pretty sure he surfaced recently. So everyone was pointing the finger at her, and so she didn't want to talk about it. So we just had like this insane conversation. You asked originally, kind of what was the original genre? It was sort of like Joe Rogan. It was just like sitting there talking to someone like they're your best friend, which is what Rogan does. Um, which, by the way, I, you know, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. I can be a little bit of a hater, which I'm about to do right now. But, I mean, Rogan <laughs> just sits on that show. A lot of times it's just his kind of idiot friends. And he's literally the number one podcast in like 93 countries. I know. I just don't understand it, to be honest. I mean, some of his guests are super intriguing and he's built a phenomenal thing. So kudos to him. I always used to joke that 
Carmen and I, my mom, we're going to, we're going to overtake Rogan, which I don't think is happening anytime soon. But, but that was like the original thing. We would just sit around and kind of BS. And we did that with Carol Baskin and she loved it because she was being so hounded at the time. And people were only asking her about Joe Exotic, only asking her about her husband. I, I had as a journalist, like my, I couldn't allow myself to not ask her. So I found, I forget how I did it, but I wiggled my way into asking her about it and like a very nonchalant kind of way. And she, and she got into it a little bit. So we kind of broke some news on that front. By the way, I got to ask you a question. What do you think of, uh, and we'll get back to Carol if you want, but what do you, th- this guy, Ross Colthart from Australia, he just had a USO, the UFO whistleblower on who says that the United States is in possession of aircraft of non-human origin. In other words, that we have, the United States has UFOs and even bodies. By the way, I'm about to get Ross Colhart to come on my show uh, through a weird coincidence. Um, but do you believe, Nina Hobson, do you believe in either UFOs or alien life? I want you on the record right now. Wow, this was not the question I was <laughs> expecting at all. Doesn't everyone believe in UFOs? I mean, come on, there has to be something else out there. There has to be. I want to know that one day I can go off in a spaceship when it all gets too bad. Um, no, I don't believe in UFOs. I mean, it's an infinite universe, but but they're getting close. And I was never really into this, but now I'm kind of really intrigued. We're just, it's an infinite universe. This guy claims that there, that we have aircraft of non-human origin. We're supposed to get, so they're get, Congress is going to have hearings now. So uh, we'll see. Well, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> but do you have any, um, let me ask it a different way. Do you have any investigative interest in trying to figure out if we are alone in this world? Well, I was actually approached by a, a director who, um, a, a Netflix director who wants to do a show about, that kind of world and then a real investigation. Mm. So I said, yeah, that would be really interesting to look at something so different, but using our our real life skills. But it, that didn't come to anything further. I want to talk to you about that off air because we just had a guy, because I, I want to kind of do something similar. We had Scott Roder on. Uh, he is a crime scene reconstructionist. He's best known for doing the crime scene reconstruction for Oscar Pistorius, who is the Olympic sprinter who was... Yeah, I was in Africa at the time of that case. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, Yeah. so he did the crime scene reconstruction. He's just based in Cleveland here. He has done some analysis and believes that uh, we are not alone. So it's interesting from an investigative standpoint. Like, he does it as a crime scene reconstruction expert. He's not just, like, picking things out of thin air. He's going and, like, because I I don't know if you guys know this because I'm kind of obsessed with it at the moment, but some – UFO allegedly crashed in the backyard of a Las Vegas home in April. Uh, police officers responded with body cam, and they the, you can see how freaked out the police officers are. And on the body cam footage, you can actually see something that looks like a UFO. And then on their body cam footage and on the footage that the neighbors are the shoot the the neighbors call in and say we see non-human creatures. These these, these people were very believable, very credible. Say they see these creatures in the backyard that are like eight to 10 feet tall with like non-human eyes. And when you are looking at the video that they shot, there's a frame where you can see two figures. And so Scott looked at all this and he doesn't know what it is, but there's definitely two things in this backyard. And the police officers were completely freaked out. Uh, They've since put cameras in the people's backyard to, to monitor what's going on here. But 
Again, that's uh, there's a lot of media hype behind that, but it would be. Int- my point is this: it'd be interesting to have uh, an investigator like yourself look at it from that from that lens. Yeah, because obviously I'm a, I work with evidence, and you see cynically straight away I'm like, well, it's a photograph or a video, and now everything can be photoshopped, put in whatever. Well, I joke with everyone. Imagine if if aliens are here. I don't think we're going to be worrying about Democrats and Republicans <laughs> too much anymore. We'll have bigger uh, bigger fish to fry. So, so maybe it's a good thing. Yeah, someone may say they already are here. Then wouldn't they? <laughs> Uh, I just want to thank you for having me on. I love having you as a guest. I told Steve Cohen, I will now embarrass you, that uh, Nina Hobson has the it factor. I think you're going to climb the success ladder out there in uh, L.A. You're going to be a sought-after commodity uh, as an investigator for different types of shows, and I'm I'm just happy to have you on Surviving the Survivor. And remember that we had you on as one of our first guests. Today, we've only discussed a few of the many parallels between journalists and law enforcement. It's helped us to understand the sacrifices that are made in order to convey the news to the public and the ethical questions they face along the way. For more on Joel, check out his daily podcast, Surviving the Survivor, live on YouTube and all major podcast platforms. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson, and this has been... Codename Siren. <laughs>